Hi, everyone. I'm Morgan. And I'm Jessica. You are listening to Suspicion. Hello. (laughs) Hello, sister. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm going to, I think we should get through this quickly because I'm a little bit concerned for you since you just turned off your air conditioning, yet you're wearing a fuzzy bathrobe (laughs) and it's 91 degrees outside right now. You know that a bathrobe is appropriate 91 degree attire for me. (laughs) You are. Stop, won't stop. (laughs) (laughs) That should be your tagline of your life. Jessica, can't stop, won't stop. I feel like that's Miley Cyrus's though. Oh, I forgot she had that song. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, that's that's probably right. I'll find well, another one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll we'll figure one out for you. Well, somebody else who can't stop, won't stop, besides you and Miley Cyrus. I'm so excited to share this story with you. That was so, an excellent segue. If Thank you. People who don't know, Jessica is a big time runner. She loves to run. She's a great trainer. And so I looked up for this week, runner survival stories. It's going to freak me out. No, because I don't, I don't like to run at all. In high school, we did cross country together. And I came in last every race, and I'm proud of it. With spirit, though. With spirit. With spirit. I just, I hate running. I don't know how you run so much. I do not hate running. That's I know. I know. So this story is for you. Are you ready for the story of Mauro Prosperi? I am now. All right. In 1994, Mauro Prosperi a 39-year-old father of three from Italy, had just retired from running Olympic pentathlons. I didn't look up what Olympic pentathlons are. Do you know what they are? Uh, I'm guessing it's five different running events. (laughs) Five different events. Fencing, freestyle swimming. Oh, whoa. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. That's called, that's the modern pentathlon, and that's from Wikipedia. I mean, if that is the combination, that's excessively impressive. Yeah, okay. The ancient disciplines. The ancient pentathlon consisted of running, jumping, spear throwing, discus, and wrestling. Wow. The pentathlon held a position of unique importance with the winner ranked as Victor Ludurum. The modern pentathlon was introduced by Baron de Coubertine, at the Stockholm Games in 1912, comprising pistol shooting, fencing, swimming, horse riding, and running. Wow. It was his belief that this event would test a man's moral qualities as much as his physical resources and skills, producing thereby a complete athlete. Oh my God, this is insane. And then there's also the indoor pentathlon, which is a 60-meter hurdle high jump, shot put, long jump, and 800 meters. See, that's more like something I would expect. I think that's, I think that's the kind that he did. 
Well, wow. you know what? I know what I'm going to be watching at the 2021 Olympics. Oh, same. I know. I, I didn't even realize that that was a thing. So anyway, this guy, Moro, 39 years old, he had just retired from running these insane events. When he heard from a friend about an extremely difficult race called the Marathon des Sables, it's also called the Sahara Marathon or the Marathon of Sand. It's a six-day, 155-mile race through the Sahara Desert. Cool. This is why I don't think it'll freak you out because I know you will never run through a desert. Well, now that you said that, it's on my list. No, mom would never let you. (laughs) And if so, I would be next to you in a dune buggy (laughs) with jugs of water. Okay, thanks. You'd be my support crew? Yes, I would. Like your pit crew in NASCAR. Yeah. Yeah. Even though many people, including his wife, believed he was crazy running a race that made you sign a form to say where you want your body to be sent in case you die. He immediately started training. He ran 25 miles a day and he reduced his water intake to get used to the feeling of dehydration and to also get used to running dehydrated. I I am miserable when I'm dehydrated. I mean, that's me these days running and it's like 98 and it's like, it's like 20 minutes, and I'm like, wow, this is awful. <laughs> I know. How did you feel yesterday? It was like 97, and you ran what? Uh, Hour and a half? Seven miles. Um, oh, God. It was, it was hot. Mm-hmm. I had uh, Dev come and meet me with the water. <laughs> good, good. Okay. I would start walking towards me, and we'll meet. <laughs> okay, I good. I, the water. I feel bad. I, I feel better about that. Okay, good. When the race started in Morocco, there were only 80 people in total, with only a few people running, so he spent the majority of his time running the race alone. However, he was always the first Italian to reach the next stage of the race each day, and so he would put an Italian flag up on his tent at night, and everyone involved would have get-togethers by the tents in the evenings and kind of hang out for a bit. How many Italians were running this? I don't know. But it just said he was the, he was like the top Italian guy. Another Italian um, guys? Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm not, I'm not undercutting his successes. (laughs) Sorry, Mauro. (laughs) Another note about the Marathon de Sable. This is a quote that I found um, from this art BBC News article that um, I got all of, basically all this information from because he's telling it himself uh, from his own perspective. It's, quote, MDS is a truly grueling multi-stage adventure through a mythical landscape and one of the world's most inhospitable environments, the Sahara Desert. You have to be self-sufficient and carry all your own food and equipment for the week on your back. Communal goat's hair Berber tents are pitched every night, but apart from that, you have to take it with you. Water is rationed, and if you exceed the ration, you get a time penalty, unquote. So far, he's starting off, he's doing well. On the fourth day, 
which also happened to be the longest and most difficult stage, the weather seemed to turn a little bit. He was in fourth place, so behind the pacemakers, but ahead of the others, which is awesome for him. I mean, come on, fourth yeah, place. super impressive. But he was running alone because he wasn't with the pacemakers, but he also wasn't, you know, kind of in the middle path. When he came to a spot of sand dunes, when suddenly a sandstorm started, the wind blew so much sand violently at him that he would later recall to BBC, BBC News, quote, I was swallowed by a yellow wall of sand. I was blinded. I couldn't breathe. The sand whipped my face. It was like a storm of needles. I understood for the first time how powerful a sandstorm could be. I turned my back on the wind and wrapped a scarf around my face to stop the sand from wounding me. I wasn't disoriented, but I had to keep moving to keep from getting buried. Eventually, I crouched down in a sheltered spot waiting for the storm to end, unquote. When I see, think of sandstorms, I think of the scene from the Prince of Egypt when he, when he decides to leave and he's, he's walking around in the desert and then all of a sudden, you know, the sandstorm comes out and then only a tuft of his hair is poking out and the camel yeah. grabs it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, of course. Great, Great movie. movie. Such, a, such a good movie. Well, this storm lasted eight hours. And when it was over, it was so dark that he just decided to sleep on these dunes, thinking that he could wake up early and try to make up for the lost time. Like I said, this race is ridiculous, where in this stage, the, the fourth day, you only had 36 hours to run or you were disqualified. He woke up and he found that the area around him looked extremely different but he had a map and a compass, so he figured he would eventually stumble upon someone from the race. But soon after running for a little bit, he realized that he was lost. The first thing he did was pee in his spare water bottle as a precaution. He, he wasn't like freaking out yet, but, and even though this sounds gross, he says that when you're still well hydrated, your pee is the clearest and most drinkable. So he decided, I'm just going to have some water, which is my pee, just in case. He still believed the organizers would find him soon. And he was also well prepared because he was carrying everything he needed. So he had a knife, a compass, a sleeping bag, dehydrated food, but he had already passed the last water checkpoint and so at this point he only had half a bottle of water left he stopped running to conserve his energy and would only walk in the morning when it was cool and at night during the day he would try to find some shelter and shade on the second day a helicopter flew so low that he could see the pilot's helmet but the pilot didn't see him or the small flare that he had shot up he kept walking and he eventually found a Muslim shrine that Bedouins usually stop at while crossing the desert, but there was no one there. He stayed there eating some rations, which he cooked with fresh urine, 
the bottled urine he saved for the fourth day that he was under the shelter. Not only is the shrine, is it giving him shelter and shade, but due to the amount of sand from the storm that came into the shelter, he was able to reach the roof and he found bats. So he decided to grab them, cut off their heads, mush up their insides, and then sucked it out of their body. Like basically drank their blood and organs. Mm-mm. He had about 20 of them raw. Mm-mm. Yeah. So this is where it gets really dire. After three days of being in the shrine, he hears an airplane and he tries to start a fire with anything that he has around him. But at that moment, another freaking sandstorm happened lasting 12 hours. Can you imagine? He hears an airplane and he's going to try to flag it down. And then another sandstorm comes. No. Yeah. It's crazy. So he then becomes obviously really depressed and he was convinced that he was going to die and he wasn't really scared about it. He just knew that it would be really slow and it would be agonizing. Oh God. I know. I would be scared. I know. I mean, I'm going to put the um, link to this article so you can read it. It's all from him. The only part that gave him some kind of hope was that his body would be found at some point because somebody was going to come through the shrine at some point Mm -hmm. and his wife would then be able to get um, the benefits because he says that like if someone's um, missing and they never find a body, it, it takes 10 years before you can declare them dead. Mm-hmm. And and he felt comforted by the fact that at least she'd be able to get like life insurance and stuff to, to support their kids. All right. On this note, um, and this is a, a, a trigger warning. He believed the only logical thing for him to do would be to kill himself. He wrote his wife a note. Then he cut his wrists and laid down to die. The next morning, he woke up, realized he hadn't died because his blood had thickened so much that it didn't drain. He, he literally tried is to kill from, himself. Is that from severe dehydration that your yes. blood would thicken to that level? Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. I know. And like, and nutrients too, you know, mm-hmm. it's crazy. But for Morrow, he believed that this was a sign and he became determined to make it home. He still had a lot of energy. Like he never really felt, you know, exhausted because he was used to his years as a pentathlete and used to training 12 hours a day. And he also had some energy tablets with him. So he decided that the only thing he can do now is to leave the shrine. And using his compass, 
He was able to follow the clouds when they would come reappear at dawn. Because if you look for the clouds, you can usually see like that's towards a horizon. So he would kind of wait till dawn, see the clouds, use his compass, and go that way. Okay. He walked for days in the desert, eating snakes and lizards raw and drinking their blood. He stopped peeing because he was so dehydrated, but luckily he had some anti-diarrheal medicine with him. So he, you know, if, if he was also like having that, he would have been. Like nutrients in him. and Exactly. Him. Exactly. And, but he could tell that he was losing so much weight because he says that um, the watch he was wearing who look at his wrist and the watch would just kept getting looser and looser and looser, even though he didn't touch it. His sense of sight was so heightened that he would find any trace of life to follow his way out. Like he, he would find like poop and stuff like that. What he didn't know was that during this time, organizers and his family were looking for him and they found some signs of him. Like, they, they stumbled upon the shrine and they, they saw that like somebody was there. But at this point, they're believing that they were looking for a body. On the eighth day, he came across a little oasis where he drank water slowly for about six or seven hours straight. And then he saw a footprint. So he knew he was on the right path. The next day, he saw goats in the distance. Then a young shepherd girl saw him and ran away because she was petrified of this strange looking man. And so she ran to a group of women in a tent. These women took care of him, giving him food, but he immediately threw it up. They gave him milk, which helped him a little bit. And then they put him in the shade while someone went to call the police. Men aren't allowed in the woman's tents. And that's why he, they kind of just kept him outside. But um, these kind of nomadic people, they camp close to military bases for protection. So it wasn't too long before police came and they carried him to their Jeep and they took him to the military base. But when they took him to the military base, he was blindfolded and he had a ton of guns on him because they didn't know who this guy was. Right. They didn't know if he was dangerous. So though. Yeah. Only when they found out he was the lost marathon runner did they put down their weapons, take off the blindfold, and celebrated. He had crossed the border into Algeria, 181 miles off course from the race. So he had done the whole race, or most no. of the race, well, and then went... Yeah. An extra 181 miles. Well, he was on, yeah, he was on the fourth day. It's a six-day race. Yeah. Yeah. This guy. Oh, my God. I know. Um, in the hospital, he called his wife, and the first thing he said to her was, have you already had my funeral? Because after 10 days lost in the desert, he expected, he would expect someone to be dead. He had lost 35 pounds and weighed only 99 pounds. His eyes had suffered from the sand and the sun and his liver was damaged, but his kidneys were fine. 
He couldn't eat anything other than liquids or soup for months, and it took him almost two years to fully recover. However, four years after this, so in 1998, he went back to run the marathon again because he wanted to finish what he started, but he was stopped because of a stubbed toe. He also said that he felt a connection to the desert and he said that like desert fever is real where he's like drawn back to it to experience it and just kind of like thank it. He raced again in 2012 and he finished in 131st place. In the BBC News article that I, I talk, talked about, um, it was written in 2014. At that time, he had run eight more desert marathons and was preparing to run a 4,350-mile coast-to-coast across the Sahara from Morocco on the Atlantic to Egypt on the Red Sea. So this guy, he's he was 39 in 1994 when this took place, and he was still like training for these extreme conditions and extreme marathons. But because of that, the training takes up a ton of time. Um, and he was gone a lot. He was traveling, traveling a lot. So him and his wife did end up splitting up, but they remain very close friends and he has a new partner now. The marathon now is pretty different. There are up to um, 1,300 participants. So they say you couldn't get lost even if you tried because it's like a snake. And now runners are equipped with the type of flares that people use at sea, which are a lot brighter. But a lot of runners are not happy about this because they weigh a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, because of COVID, the 2020 race has been postponed. It was supposed to take place in September of this year. Now Moro is a crowd control cop in the nearby city of Catania. So um, I found this thing, it was at the end of one of the articles I read about him, and it's from The Essentials of Sea Survival by F. Golden and M. Tipton, but they have a segment on surviving in the desert. So I just wanted to like show how dire the situation was, even though I think when you start drinking the blood of lizards, you know your situation kind of sucks. But um, from this book, without water, death occurs after about three days in the desert as the body dries out quickly, whereas at sea, people can survive six to seven days without water. But because the, the desert's so hot and humid. Yeah. yeah. It like pulls it out of you. Yeah. Yep. Um, something that you should do if you're lost in the desert is drink nothing for the first 24 hours to put your body into survival mode which I, I didn't know. No. And I would, I would not do that. <laughs> um, okay. Drinking urine is not recommended. It contains salt and urea, so it will actually dehydrate you further. But like I said, he, he immediately peed in that extra water bottle to save because he was still hydrated. Mm -hmm. And he said, like, if you're still hydrated and your pee is clear, 
then it doesn't have as much salt or digesting protein uses more water than other foods so it's best avoided and i think that's why instead of eating the like meat of the lizards or whatever and like cooking them that's why he would drink their blood to get all the nutrients but i think less protein because then it says drinking blood may help as it is easy to digest and may conserve body water survivors at sea have drunk turtle blood so you got to go full vampire out in the desert everyone good to know i mean i really hope i'm never in this situation i really don't think you ever will be well at the beginning, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to do it now. She's calling me out. <laughs> at the end of the story, I'm like, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yeah. And that's the story of Morrow Prosperi. Bananas. Yeah. I, I once, once I heard, because the article that I saw, it's, it says, I ate, I drank bat blood in my urine to survive. I was like, Yes, please. <laughs> oh my gosh. You sicko. Okay, well, I have a story that does not include drinking bat's blood for you, Jay. All right, that's good. Talk about that for a segue. That was a good segue. So, I actually have two survivor stories today. Ooh. One is a woman who survived a plane crash, and one is a woman who survived in the Peruvian rainforest. Oh, cool. They just happen to be the same woman. That was awesome. Thank you. (laughs) This is the story of Juliana Kopka. Juliana was born in Lima, Peru on October 10th, 1954. She was a German citizen, um, but her parents were zoological scientists doing research in South America. On Christmas Eve, 1971, when Juliana was just 17 years old, her and her mother boarded a flight from Lima, Peru, to a small town in Peru to meet her father. They were flying over the Peruvian rainforest when their plane entered into a dark, heavy cloud. Oh my God. You know, this is my worst nightmare. I know. Sorry. Okay. Keep going. Juliana's was not afraid at first because she liked flying, but her mom was freaking out a bit. She quickly realized though, that the type of turbulence they were feeling was not feeling typical. Oh God. Nobody, I'm sorry. Nobody likes flying. No, I, I don't believe you. Okay. I don't believe anybody likes flying. What about pilots? What about <laughs> birds? They don't. That's why they walk across the with, their, with their tiny little feet. That's why they don't fly away from you. You're driving with your big car. Okay. okay. The plane was jumping up and down. Oh, God. And luggage was flying out of the overhead compartments in every direction. They saw lightning all around the plane and became really scared at this point. After about 10 minutes, Juliana and her mother noticed a bright light on the left engine where it had been struck by lightning. Oh my God. 
Juliana's mother said, that's the end. It's all over. And those were the last words Juliana's mother would ever speak to her. The plane started nosediving. Oh, Jessica, you should have prepared me. I'm sorry. At some point during the fall, Juliana noticed that she was outside the plane. What? She was free falling in her seat. No! She could see the jungle canopy approaching as she lost consciousness. She didn't lose consciousness early enough for, like... Oh my god, if I was ejected from a plane, I'd want to be knocked out pronto. She awoke the next day and realized she had survived this crash. I believe I read that she fell like two miles. She shouted for her mother, but quickly realized she was completely alone. She had broken her collarbone, had deep cuts on her legs, a gash in her arm, and had ruptured a ligament in her knee, but nothing was keeping her from moving and from surviving. She found the wreckage from the plane, suitcases, twisted metal, and bodies, but not her mother's. She also found a package of candy, which would be the only food she ate for the next 10 days. In the rainforest. What? The rainforest would be a terrifying place for most people to survive. Yeah. Like me. Or, yeah. But luckily, Juliana knew how to survive in this area. Like I mentioned, her parents, you know, worked in this area. And she had spent 18 months living with her parents at a research site not too far from the crash where she learned about the dangers in the rainforest and how to avoid them. Wow. That's, that's good. Yeah. Another person who, I mean, all of these people seem prepared. Right. And if you're going to be, I mean, I guess for her, like sometimes, you know, if you're going out on a boat or running in the Sahara desert, like you would hope that you would have some knowledge and preparedness to take Mm -hmm. that on. But, but she, she's like, she, like grew up here. She, she shouldn't have expected, though, to be dumped in the middle of the rainforest. True. Because she was flying in a plane. <sighs> she made her way to a s- small stream. This was so interesting to me. And she jumped in the water and started wading along. She knew mm-hmm. that following the stream would give her some protection from the rainforest and also lead her to larger rivers where people lived. Wow. She spent most of the days she survived wading through the water. Okay, could she drink it? I bet. You ask the tough question. Sorry, it could be saltwater stream. I'm assuming she could, though. In the rainforest? I think it was probably... It's probably fresh. water. Yeah. I'm not 100% positive. Um, she did, as you would expect, regardless of your preparedness, she struggled to survive in those days. Yeah. Insect bites were relentless. <sighs> that would probably drive me over the edge so quickly. I was watching a uh-huh. Naked and Afraid episode uh, where she's like could not stop getting eaten alive by bugs Mm. and it broke 
this woman down so quick. Mm-hmm. But also the gash in her arm became infected and maggots began living in the wound. Oh. I know. Oh, God. Giuliano worked her way along and eventually stumbled upon a boat. She found gasoline and poured that on her wounded arm to kill the maggots. And she said, so the maggots started like crawling out because oh, they God. wanted to get away from the gasoline. And she counted 35. Oh, my God. And I feel like that would be so painful. Oh, yeah. She said it was painful. Oh, God. (sighs) Then she patiently waited for the boat owner to return. After several hours, some lumbermen returned to the boat to find Juliana, who explained her situation. The men tended her wounds, gave her food, and let her get a good night's sleep. Then the next day, they endeavored on a day-long journey to a local airstrip where she was airlifted to a hospital to her father, and Mm -hmm. they were reunited. She was later confirmed as the only person to have survived the crash. It appeared her mother had also survived the initial crash, but succumbed to injuries after a few days, which caused Juliana to feel like a lot of survivor's guilt, it seemed, from what she described. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't even imagine. I mean, it's so, that's so upsetting. She moved back to Germany after the crash to fully recover, but later moved back to Peru to do extensive research on bats. Oh, two bat stories. I was going to say, bats are a theme, I'm realizing. Baby bats are actually really cute. No, dog. That's no, they, they, they are. Looking it up. You know how I'm obsessed with those videos of, of um, little sloths getting... Oh, Morgan. Come on. They're cute. Nope. I don't no. know what you're looking at, fool. See that? I don't know. Well, the the wings are weird. All right. What happened to Juliana? Okay. She wrote an autobiography called When I Fell from the Sky. And Werner Herzog made a documentary about her called Wings of Hope. Hmm. So what's super interesting is the reason Herzog was interested in doing this story is because he had a personal connection. He was supposed to be on that flight, but last-minute plan changes saved him from being a part of this tragedy. Oh, those, those type of stories, I get, I get the, like, goosebumps. Like, all of the people who who said, you know, oh, yeah, I was supposed to be on that flight on 9-11 or, or, you know, I was supposed to be, like, somewhere during an earthquake. Or the Titanic. Or the Titanic. The people who bet their tickets and Jack <laughs> ends up on the Titanic. True story. <laughs> True story. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. Well, now I'm never getting on a plane again. 
Oh no, what have I done? Was it like a small plane? I bet it's a small plane. I think so. I hate Like them. a hopper. I hate them. Well, Juliana, you girl. Oh, man. Yeah, so you she go, girl. bubble survived. I also, I think I saw, I think this was on a Naked and Afraid, where they were in like the bayou or something, and they had their feet in the water for too long. And they're like, oh, we can't, we can't be in the water for too long because we will get like gangrene. Yeah, your skin will start like. Oh, I'm like so pruney. Oh, no. oh, let's never leave our homes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone look up the song. I think I mentioned this last week, but I can't stress it enough. YOLO by The Lonely Island. Yeah, that's, live once. that's what we're living by now. You stay in your house. <laughs> All right, so our organization for this week is called 261 Fearless. For years, the number 261 has stood for women's ability to break barriers in running. It's the bib number Catherine Schweitzer wore when she became the first registered woman to run the Boston Marathon in 1967. You go, girl. More than five decades later, Schweitzer serves as founder and board chair for this organization that connects female runners around the globe. Programs include non-competitive running events, a coaching certification that focuses on teaching healthy, sustainable running habits to women, and local clubs that meet for runs, of which there are now 23 and counting in locations from Albania to Kansas City to Zambia. To learn more about this organization, visit their website at 261fearless.org. I was actually looking looking into it because there's times where I want to be a runner, but then... I set my alarm, I mean, my timer. I'm like, oh, I'll just do 20 minutes. And then I'm running for two minutes, and I'm like. Do you have, like, good music or a podcast? Mm, no, it's just boring. I just, what? I don't know. I don't like know. I get, podcast? Yeah, I get bored. Yeah, that face says it all. <laughs> <laughs> it does not compute. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. I will post all of this stuff in a timely manner. I was a little bit behind last week. We forgive you. Jess, I don't know if you noticed or not, but our Instagram was a little behind, and I take full responsibility, and I'm sorry, and it won't happen again. No big deal. I just managed up the edited episodes, edited on time every week, you know, take your time, sis. I'm going to take this to the mat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, so look at our Instagram, Suspicion, Facebook, our website, suspicion.com. And thanks for listening. Let us know what you're thinking about these survivor stories, too. And if you have any that you know of, send them along. Thanks, everyone. Stay suspicious. Especially on planes. Yeah. <laughs>